We're going to be looking in Mark chapter 9 uh, this morning, and, and uh, Mark chapter 9, verse 1. And he said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that there are some standing here who will not taste death till they see the kingdom of God present with power. Now after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John and led them up on a high mountain apart by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. His clothes became shining, exceedingly white like snow, such as no launderer on earth can whiten them. And Elijah appeared to them with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. We'll discuss this famous passage this morning under the purview of uh, the rapture of the redeemed, a preview of the rapture. You might not be familiar with the term rapture, and if you look in the Bible or do a Bible search on it, you're not going to find that word anywhere in either the Old or the New Testament. Uh, We have invented that word. By we, I mean theologians, Bible students have come up with this word, rapture, to describe the time when Jesus returns and gathers His people out of this world, whether living or dead. And it is a specific event, as we'll see in a moment, uh, that is promised and prophesied in Scripture. The word itself is derived from a word that's found in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 16 through 18. For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then... We which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus shall we always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Now, we'll consider this passage, this whole concept of the rapture in reference to this specific passage in Mark chapter 9, Because of what Jesus said, he promised to the disciples, there are some of you standing around here, and this had come uh, several days before this. You might remember when Jesus had gone uh, with the disciples to Caesarea Philippi, and he asked them the question, who do men say that I am? And uh, there were several different answers, but then they gave the response, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And, And then Jesus gave them the promise that this text begins with in Mark chapter 9 and verse 1. Uh, that some of you, some of you will not die, will not taste of death until you see the Son of Man coming uh, in His power and glory. So that time then of the rapture is connected with this passage. There's something here that's happening with the transfiguration of Jesus uh, that is a preview of the rapture. Uh, now, after this scene had played out in, in Mark chapter 8, uh, uh, you'll see it, verse uh, 38, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man also will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. <coughs> so we see he introduced that subject then. Then we see it again in chapter 9 and verse 1. There are some standing here who will not taste death till they see the kingdom of God present with power. Now, Jesus would take them to a high mountain. He doesn't identify what the mountain is. Some people think it was Mount Hebron, or Mount Hermon, rather, because Hermon was very close by. They were already in Caesarea Philippi. That would have been just right there. They could, in fact, see it from there. It's at the foot of that mountain. But tradition asserts that it actually was Mount Tabor, 
uh, not in Cabot, but in Israel, Mount Tabor. Uh, Mount Tabor is a mountain that sets apart. It's a beautiful cone-shaped mountain. If you could ever picture a volcano in your mind, uh, Mount Tabor looks like one. It rises up out of the Jezreel Valley, much like Pettigene does if you've ever been there. And you're there in the Arkansas Valley, and all of a sudden there's a mountain. Well, Mount Tabor does that. All of a sudden it rises up out of the Valley of Jezreel, or also known as the Valley of Megiddo, uh, also then known as Har-Megiddon. Uh, Ar-Megiddo is the Valley of Megiddo. So right there, that Valley of Jezreel, Valley of Je- uh, Megiddon, rises up to Mount Tabor. And tradition asserts that that's where uh, the transfiguration was. But the Bible doesn't specifically say. And because it doesn't say, I would say the location doesn't matter a whole lot. What does matter is what happened there. This is a place where Jesus was transfigured before them, and they saw him then in his glory. Now, when we began the task of preaching through the Gospel of Mark, I promise you that most of the time we'd spend our time just looking at what Mark said without bouncing around to all the other Gospels. But this is such a pivotal moment, uh, such a watershed moment in the ministry of Jesus that I think it would do us good to look at Luke's account as well. In Luke chapter 9 and verse 28, Now it came to pass about eight days after these sayings, uh, that is what he had just said on Caesarea Philippi, Peter professing him, same scene. After these sayings, about eight days later, Luke says, don't get thrown by that. Mark and Matthew said six days. Luke says eight days. That's not a contradiction. Luke just included the day the promise was given and the day that it was actually fulfilled, where Mark and Matthew would have just been talking about the intervals of time. Uh, That's not uncommon in Scripture. It happens a lot of places. That Jesus then, after eight days, took Peter, John, and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he prayed, the appearance of his face was altered, and his robe became white and glistening. And behold, two men talked with him, who were Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his decease, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. But Peter and those with him were heavy with sleep. Can you imagine? They almost slept through the transfiguration. Uh, the disciples slept through a lot of stuff, or almost did. I think when we get to heaven, we're going to find out we slept through a lot of really cool stuff. His eye, their eyes were heavy with sleep, and when they were fully awake then, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with them. Now Mark emphasized only the clothes of Jesus, and they said that Mark said how that his clothes were brighter, uh, shining more than any launderer could make them. Now, if you've ever tried to keep white stuff white, you know that that's not as easy as it sounds. Now, they make a marvelous product called bleach, but even bleach doesn't always get all that stuff out. You know, you can bleach it out and scrub it out, and still get ring around the collar. I don't know how, how I don't care how much whiskey you use. It's just hard to keep white stuff white. And so Mark tells us this is more than any launderer could cause it. That is, it was not done by human hands. Jesus' garments was glistening. The only comparison he could make would be like the sunshine on freshly fallen snow. And if you've ever seen that, you know what it's like to walk out of your house and your eyes maybe are are not accustomed to it. All of a sudden, you're just almost blinded by this brilliant white. That's what the clothes of Jesus looked like, Mark says. 
But Luke emphasized for us that it wasn't just his clothes. It was his face. It was him. He was glowing or shining with that heavenly glory so that he was changed. His clothes were changed. Now There were times in the Old Testament when the glory of God was seen. There were times when the glory of God filled the temple. We remember the time when Moses, who's right here in this passage, went up on the mountain and received the law. He saw the glory of the Lord. And he came down with his face shining. That didn't happen with the disciples, though they no doubt saw the same glory. Luke tells us that Jesus was praying, the disciples were dozing, and Moses and Elijah showed up talking with Jesus about his death. About his death. Now you remember, I hope you do, that just a, a, few, a couple of weeks ago, we saw just a few passages before this where Jesus began to talk to the disciples about his death, and Simon Peter went so far as to rebuke Jesus. He rebuked him. He said, this, will not, this can't be. You see, there was no way that Peter could reconcile the idea of Jesus being the Messiah and also dying. He, just, he couldn't bring those things together. And so now, after these six days have passed, he's back up on the mountain, and now there he is transfigured before them. And there is Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus about his death. We can see very quickly how these two great witnesses came together. Moses, of course, would represent the law, the law of Moses, also known as the law of sin and of death. Moses was certainly qualified to talk about Jesus' death. He knew. Moses knew. But all those sacrifices of the Old Testament, they could not take away sin. He knew. There was Elijah, the greatest of the prophets. These two men, of course, represent the great uh, miraculous outbreaks of the Old Testament and Moses in delivering Israel from Egypt and Elijah during that great time of, of prophecy in the days of wicked Ahab and, uh, and, and Jezebel, his wife. Uh, we remember the times of great miracles that were accomplished by these men. Um, Elijah then, the greatest of the Old Testament prophets. Moses, the giver of the law. The law and the prophets then, talking to Jesus about dying. Moses died and was buried. God himself conducted the funeral. Elijah never died. He was caught up to heaven in a whirlwind, the Bible says. A chariot of fire. It was a, a glorious time as Elijah departed. That wasn't going to be Jesus' faith, though. Elijah never suffered the pain of death, but Jesus would. And so when Jesus began to talk to the disciples about his death, they struggled with it. Now, even after the transfiguration, even after seeing all this, they're still struggling with it. Look in verse 9 of Mark chapter 9. Now, as they came down from the mountain, he commanded them that they should tell no one the things they had seen till the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept this word to themselves, questioning what the rising from the dead meant. They still couldn't get it in their heads. 
Jesus, you see, was speaking of the time of the coming kingdom, the glory, he called it, of his Father. And he would come in power. And then he gives them this preview of the event. And if nothing else, it would show them that the death of Jesus Christ was not going to prevent that glorious kingdom from coming. And in fact, the death of Jesus Christ is very prominently a part of the plan. His coming kingdom would not happen without his death. It was a necessary means. Colossians chapter 1 verse 19 tells us it pleased the Father that in him, that is Jesus, all the fullness should dwell and by him to reconcile all things to himself. By him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. You see, the death of Jesus was no afterthought. It was not some made up plan uh, just made on the spur of the moment. It was God's plan all along. And Jesus wanted them to know that His coming kingdom and His coming power and glory were not going to be sidetracked by His death. That the death, in fact, was part of the plan and an essential part of the plan. So there was Moses and Elijah and Jesus talking about His death. Oh, Oh, what a meeting that was. And then the Bible says... Uh, Peter interrupted. Now, I'm sure he did it much more respectfully than he did before. Uh, He didn't rebuke Jesus. Uh, He probably learned his lesson, but still, he's interrupting. How would you like to interrupt that conversation? Peter spoke up. Lord, I got a plan. And the plan was, uh, you know, it's good for us to be here. Uh, We could say amen to that. That indeed was a good thing to see. So let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, because he did not know what to say, for they were greatly afraid. Let me just give you a point. All of us know a little bit about what it's like when we don't know what to say, but we just say something anyway. (laughs) This is a good time for us to notice that if you don't know what to say, saying nothing is always appropriate. But Simon Peter couldn't couldn't do that. I always liked that old saying, you know, I have the right to remain silent, but I just don't have the ability. I, I I know about that one. Simon Peter said, but what he proposes here is an alternative. He sees Jesus there in all of his glory. What a sight that was. Moses and Elijah there giving witness to him, talking about his death. And what does he say? Oh, no, we, we don't have to do, go to the cross. We don't have to do all that. You want to talk about death? No, you're already here in your glory. We can replace that old system now with this new one. Let's just build three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. We'll have a whole new system here. No need to die. Same kind of thought. It's still in his mind. We don't have to do all that. We can understand his logic. Somebody else then came on the scene. Verse 7. And a cloud came and overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved son. Hear him. Suddenly when they had looked around, they saw no one anymore but only Jesus with themselves. This would, require, this would accomplish the required two or three witnesses that the law gave. They had Moses and, and Elijah and then God himself. This is my beloved son. Hear 
him. Simon Peter heard that command. He got the message and he'd never get over it either. either. All the way down in 2 Peter at the end of his life, 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 16, he says, For we do not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. He never forgot it. He always remembered it. He was with him literally until his death. He had heard the voice of God. There was Jesus, Moses, and Elijah. That, that's quite a crowd gathered right there. The only one I could think of that might have added to that august assembly would have been Abraham himself. But Abraham didn't show up that day, but God did. Moses and Elijah were speaking of the death of Jesus. God affirmed what they had to say. Listen. It's time to listen. And out of this, and, and we make that connection then between the death of Jesus Christ and His coming kingdom. He wanted them to know that Jesus coming in power and glory, Jesus coming for His people in what we call the rapture, this was not something... Uh, that was going to be done independently of the death of Jesus Christ. His death had to happen. It was part of God's plan. It had been part of His plan all along. I want to suggest to you this morning three things that we can learn from this passage, from this preview of the rapture. Now, you know what a preview is. If you see a preview of a movie, you're just going to be given a few clips of it, you know, that kind of gives you just a little glimpse and a general idea of what's going to happen. I think that's what this passage does for us. Did not give them a detailed account. Other passages would do that. And we'll look at some of those this morning. But what we see here gives us a preview. I want to share with you three things we learned from it. One thing we'll learn about it from it, I believe, is the timing of the rapture. That is, it's a preview about the timing Jesus, remember, said, Whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him, the Son of Man also will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father. The glory of his Father. And he said, Assuredly, some of you will come and you'll see the kingdom of God present with power. So Jesus is talking about how that these people were going to see him come in glory and power. But it was just a preview of what was to come later, a limited revelation of what was to come. But it does show us something about the timing of this event. Jesus was going to come in the glory of His Father. He was going to come with His angels. But before that happens, He sits back and shows them this aspect as a separate event. Moses, you see, in this preview would represent those who are dead in Christ. Moses served God, led the people out of Egypt, but he didn't lead them into the promised land. He died. God himself conducted the funeral. Moses was dead and buried, so he would represent the dead in Christ. Elijah went to heaven without dying. He would represent those who are going to be caught up out of this world without dying. 
And this passage then would go very well with what Paul has said in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 16. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. (laughs) What a great promise that is. Now I'll readily admit this morning, There are many who believe this event will happen at the end of a time the Bible calls the Great Tribulation. That speaks of a seven-year period where God's wrath and judgment will be poured out upon this world. And there are those who believe that this promised event, the rapture, is all speaking of a combined event where Jesus returns with His angels, sets up His heavenly kingdom, He calls up then the dead in Christ. He calls up the living believers and they'll meet the Lord in the air. And within their view, then they'll come immediately down to the earth and establish the millennial kingdom. That's what we call an end of the week view of the rapture or the return of Jesus Christ. But I personally don't believe that. And I want to share with you a couple of passages why. And why I think this passage has to do with the timing of the rapture. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 8, the Bible says, But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and for an helmet the hope of salvation. For God has not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with Him. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 9 then, For they themselves declare concerning what manner of entry we had to you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Now, when you look at the context of 1 Thessalonians, you'll understand that there's no doubt the wrath to come is referring to that time where God's judgment is going to be poured out upon the world. You need to understand, people, and it's my responsibility as a preacher of the Word of God to remind you that this world was created with an expiration date, and it is not going to be continuing on after that expiration date expires. There's a time coming when this world is going to face the judgment of God. God's clock is ticking. (laughs) I can't tell you what time it is exactly on God's time, but I'm going to tell you we're closer to that day than we've ever been before. I believe with all my heart that day is growing near. The time when the rapture will occur, when God's people will be called out. But now this passage, Paul says very clearly that we're going to be delivered from God's wrath and that we're going to be delivered from that time of wrath, specifically from that great tribulation time. Now I can't reconcile that with that happening at the end because you know when Jesus comes and establishes His kingdom, you know what happens next? That's called the millennial reign of Christ. And it's going to be a time of great peace, not a time of wrath, not a time of judgment. So if God is going to deliver us from that time of wrath, then that has to come back at the beginning of the tribulation period. And that's when I think it's going to be. I think it's pretty clear. I can't accept an end of the week position, although many people do. I'll respect that. This passage then gives some strong support to this as Jesus' promise of their seeing the coming kingdom in glory. And the very first thing that He shows them 
is something that would picture the rapture of the redeemed. The dead in Christ. And those who go to heaven without dying. Moses and Elijah. The very first thing. If it previews the timing then, it also previews the participants. Hang with me. We're not going to spend a lot of time here. You're, you're ahead of me, I know, because we've talked about Elijah and Moses and how they represent those who are dead in Christ, who rise first, and then those who are alive when Jesus comes, who will be caught up together and meet the Lord in the air. I remind you again of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 10 that tells us that Jesus died for us. That whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with Him. And 1 Thessalonians 4 and verse 14, For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with Him, if we believe, if we believe, if we believe. Do you understand then why it is so crucial for Jesus at this point to make sure that the disciples, and this is less than six months before all of this event was going to play out, And they were going to see his death. They were going to see him buried. They were going to then experience that resurrection. But there would be those agonizing moments in between. Where all they knew was that they had believed on Jesus. And then they saw him die. But Jesus wanted them to know before it ever happened. And he wants certainly us to know. That his death and burial and resurrection. Is a crucial crucial part that the only way that you can be a participant in this rapture event so that you have died and then you experience resurrection or you're alive when Jesus comes and you're caught up to meet him the only way that you can be prepared for that is to believe on the gospel of Jesus Christ his death burial and resurrection you see Jesus Christ died for our sins he died for my sins he died for your sins He died for the sins of the whole world. He tasted death, the Bible says, for every man. But while salvation gives them that opportunity for all to be saved, it is effective only for those who believe. So the Bible very clearly tells us, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. The participants in the time of the rapture, when people will be caught up and delivered from the wrath to come, it's promised only to those who have believed on the Lord Jesus. I want to ask you a simple question this morning. Right there where you sit. Are you ready for the rapture? Are you ready for Jesus to come? If you are ready, it is because you have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ and you perceived Him as your Savior. If you're not ready, it's because you have not done that. And I plead with you, whether you're sitting in this building or watching us from home, or wherever you might be, I plead with you. If you haven't done that, don't put that decision off. You don't want to be one of those who are left behind when Jesus comes to face the full force of the wrath of God with hell to follow. You don't want that. Trust Jesus Christ today. He'll be your Savior. There's a wonderful truth that's demonstrated in this passage. Let's not forget that Moses died. But Moses died under the judgment of God. The Bible tells us that Moses' eye was not dim. Some of you can identify with that pretty well. Uh, his, his strength was not abated. That is, he hadn't, he hadn't lost his strength. 
He was 120 years old. He died, but Moses didn't die of old age. Moses died under the judgment of God. Why? Because he did not believe God. You remember that story when God told him to speak to the rock, and instead he smote the rock twice? He didn't believe God. And he died then under God's judgment. Moses led the people of Israel out of Egypt, but he didn't take them into the promised land. But I'll tell you what Moses did. Moses showed up on the mountain of transfiguration. Moses had messed up. But it didn't keep him out of the rapture. Let's not forget that Elijah was a quitter. He was a great man, great prophet, but there came that time where he was done. He stood for God there on Mount Carmel and, and faced down the prophets of Baal, called down the fire from heaven, preached to Ahab and Jezebel, and then fled for his life and told God, God, I'm done. I'm through. I quit. Well, Elijah might have been through with God, but God wasn't through yet with Elijah. But he heard his, he heard his prayer. He heard what he said. God gave him a list of things to do. Mainly what he was going to do was anoint his successor. Go and get Elisha. He's plowing with 12 yokes of oxen. Put your mantle upon him. Because you see, Elisha is going to finish what you've quit on. And don't, don't despair too much for Elijah. Elijah didn't retire back in some place of obscurity and disgrace. No, uh, remember Elijah uh, went up to heaven in that uh, glorious uh, chariot that God sent for him without dying. God had some unfinished business for Elijah to do. That's all over the Old Testament and even here in this passage. But these two men were believers, no doubt. But they were flawed believers. But the fact that they were flawed believers did not keep them out of the rapture. And that's a good thing. I, I got some news for you today. You might not like this. You might not say amen very well. But uh, I'll tell you, the only kind of believers that God has is flawed believers. Uh, what's true, what is good in us is the good that God has given us. Yes, we, are, we have an absolutely perfect salvation. And that's true. The rapture isn't for perfect believers because there aren't any, and there won't be any until God makes us that way. Which brings us nicely into the third thing this passage previews very hurriedly. It previews the effects. It previewed the timing of the rapture, the participants of the rapture, and also the effects. Luke's account says this in Luke 9 and 30, And behold, two men talked with them who were Moses and Elijah who appeared in glory. You see, Jesus wasn't the only one who was there in glory, but Moses and Elijah were there in glory too. And where Mark talked only about their appearance, Luke, with his characteristic attention to detail, tells us that they were there in glory. And for them to appear in glory, the death of Jesus Christ was essential. 2 Timothy 2 and 10, Therefore I endure all things for the elect's sake, that they may also obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. It is a faithful saying, For if we be dead with Him, we shall also live with Him. How do we die with Christ? 
When we believe on Him, His death becomes our death. His burial is counted our burial. His resurrection becomes our resurrection in His life, but then becomes our life. If we die with Him, we'll also live with Him. You understand now why Jesus was talking about His death? Why at this point in the transfiguration that Him and Elijah and Moses were talking about His death? 1 John chapter 3 and verse 2 tells us this. The only way to get to that glory is through Jesus Christ. Beloved, now are we children of God, and it's not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when He is revealed, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. Jesus prayed this in John chapter 17 and verse 22, And the glory which you gave me I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one. He's talking about all those who believe in Jesus. I and them and you and me, that they may be made perfect in one. The glory which you, God, have given me, that's to Jesus, I have given them, those who believe on me. You see, Christ lives in us. He lives in all believers. So that glory in us is on the inside. No wonder the Bible says that when we are saved, we become a new creature, a new creation in Jesus Christ. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things become new. Where is that true? It is true of us on the inside. That's where Jesus put His glory. On the inside of us. So that Christ lives in us. All we can see is what's on the outside. And I'll tell you what, that glory that Jesus put in us is... Unfortunately, wrapped up in a veil of flesh. And this flesh is subject to corruption. It's subject to decay. It's subject to the power and the presence of sin. We show the effects of the curse in this flesh all the time. But one glorious day, this robe of flesh will drop and rise and seize the everlasting prize. One glorious day will be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. And what's on the inside of us, the glory, will become what's on the outside of us. So what we are on the outside will match what we are on the inside, and it will be glorious. How do I know it? I'm glad you asked. Philippians 3.20, For our citizenship is in heaven from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body, that it may be conformed to His glorious body, according to the working by which He is able even to subdue all things to Himself. What a promise. One day, you see, those who believe in Jesus, whether living or dead, will go through their own transformation, their own transfiguration. You see, the word that is used in uh, Philippians chapter 3 and verse 21 and translated transform is is the same word that's used in Greek, of the, the metamorphosis of the transfiguration of Jesus. That's the word our word, metamorphosis, comes from. And that word was not chosen haphazardly because it describes specifically what happens when the inner essential nature of something comes to the outside. That's metamorphosis. Our most frequent example of that is the caterpillar that turns into a butterfly. What does this mean? It means that a butterfly is not a flying worm. Mm -mm. 
the caterpillar is a crawling butterfly. You see, the inner nature, though you can't see it when you look at that creepy-looking caterpillar, nasty-looking thing, fuzzy and slimy, creepy thing. You don't look at anything that looks like a butterfly in there. That's not what you see. But that's what it is on the inside. Metamorphosis. And when what happens on the inside comes to the outside. We're very well familiar with what the world calls a makeover. We know about that. I mean, we can change all things about our appearance, enough makeup. Uh, <laughs> I mean, uh, I've, seen some of those, I've seen some of those ladies on TV with all that makeup on. And, and I'm telling you what, they can make you look as young as you want to look or as old as you don't want to look. They can, you don't like your hair color, they can change it. And if they can't fix you up enough... We got that marvelous thing called Photoshop anymore. And even if you're not real good at it, you can, you can fix everything up. I've often wished we'd have a mirror that would make us look young and skinny. Well, hey, we don't have a mirror that will do that, but Photoshop will. A lot of things will change our appearance that has nothing to do with our character, what we are on the inside. I want you to know this morning, listen to me, people, God and God alone can put His glory in us so that we are perfect and sinless and glorious on the inside. And then God can change it so that our outside matches what we are on the inside. God and God alone. Anything can give you a makeover, but God and only God can put that glory in you first. And then see to it that that glory that's on the inside comes to the outside. He changes us to be a new creation. And one glorious day, that change will come to the outside. That's what the disciples saw when the inner essential nature of Jesus came to the outside. It was glory. There was Moses and Elijah. They too appeared in glory. Whether they kept it or just had it for a moment and then had to wait for all the rest of us. I don't know. We'll figure out how all that played out. I know only what the text tells us. And at that moment in time, they were there with Jesus in their glorified body. Simon Peter was thinking, and the other disciples too. They, They didn't understand all that talk about his death. We can get by that. I mean, we've got all this glory right here. Let's just usher all this in on the spot. I'm glad they didn't. Because <laughs> if they had of, I, I, would, I wouldn't have got the chance to be alive, be a preacher, get to know Jesus, lead other people to Christ. I, I'm glad he didn't. But the fact is, it couldn't happen that way. God had a plan, and that plan was going to be followed. That plan included the cross of Calvary. The glory of Jesus Christ. So that he would say to a lost and dying world. I if I be lifted up. Will draw all men unto me. Without that drawing no man would be saved. No man would believe apart from the working of the Holy Spirit. The Bible tells us so plainly, there's none that seeketh after God. Men turn aside to their own way. 
And I say that this morning because you might be sitting there at home feeling something you don't understand. You may be sitting in this crowd today feeling something you don't understand. A conviction, something moving in your heart, something that's warning you that you need to get ready for the rapture. You need to get ready to meet Jesus. That's not the power of human persuasion. That is the power of the Holy Spirit of God. And without that drawing power of the Spirit, you won't be saved. But oh, I tell you, today if you hear His voice, the Bible says, don't harden your hearts. Don't say no. And at that moment then, if you're feeling that Spirit's conviction, you respond. You respond. I'll close out by reminding you today of the words of Simon Peter. He said, we did not, we're not giving to you cleverly devised fables. That's Simon Peter's way of saying, we didn't make this up. We didn't make it up. I'm not telling you a fairy tale. I'm not giving you a nursery rhyme. This is not some fictitious account of something somebody made up in their own mind. He said, I was there. I saw it. I saw Him transfigured. I saw His glory. I heard the voice of God. This is my Son. I was there. I saw it. We didn't make it up. And as I say that today, I know that you feel that same power and conviction that Simon Peter felt so long ago. That God saw to it that he wrote it down in his word. There is a coming kingdom of Christ. Jesus is coming to this world. Are you ready to meet him? Let's stand.